Welcome to Rising. We have a historic show for you today. Um, Brianna, what do we have? Well, with that lead in, we'll discuss Biden's student debt cancellation with a special panel. I'm excited about that. And Alec Carrick Katsanis weighs in on the brutal Arkansas police beating. Mm. But first, a group of families of the victims and survivors of the Uvalde shooting at Robb Elementary are filing a class action lawsuit that seeks $27 billion in damages that will target multiple law enforcement agencies on the federal, state, and local levels. Uvalde Schools Police Chief Pete Arredondo refused to attend a school board meeting yesterday, saying he would not participate in his own illegal and unconstitutional public lynching. Arredondo did end up getting fired for his catastrophic handling of the shooting, which we have criticized numerous times on the show. CNN's Shimon Prokopech reported on that school board meeting and what transpired. Let's watch. Right. Last night, Jake, there was a school board meeting where the, they were listening to grievances that the community members, family members have uh, against the superintendent. This, over three hours, this meeting went on for over three hours, and it was all behind closed doors. And so family members couldn't listen to what was being discussed. And then there was just this level of frustration after the school board members came out and simply suggested some changes, that they would have a town hall before school started, they would look into some of the police response, the school police response of that day. It wasn't enough for parents. You know, time and time again, I'm at these school board meetings, and time and time again, you leave these meetings, and it's just, you get this sense that the parents are just not getting the answers that they want. There has been no accountability. Tomorrow, there will be another school board meeting, Jake, where we expect that the police chief, the school police chief, will finally be fired, but that is still not 100% certain, but that is certainly on the agenda tomorrow night, and that is what parents are expected, so we will hear more about that tomorrow night, Jake. Mm. Shimon tweeted out that this is nowhere near done, and tonight there will be another school board meeting. Mm. It's, it's kind of incredible with the kinds of things that people get fired for routinely, the kind of mistakes that are made that are so much less significant than what happened at Ovalde, that he's still in his position. Uh, it, it's frustrating. It's not surprising. I mean, this is, you talk about qualified immunity, you talk mm -hmm. about the other protections that government employees have. You know, these are the people who work for, they work for us, they work for the taxpayers, and they are harder to get rid of when they screw up than, right, your average employee of any company. You, you do the slightest thing wrong, you can get fired. It happens to people all the time. It's often unjust, it's often wrong. These people, trusted to to keep children safe uh failed horribly I, I mean we can you know recount the failures here everyone's standing the police officers standing in that hallway for an hour hour and a half while children have been murdered are dying bleeding on the floor calling for help calling 911 for help that we, we can see the security footage of them whole of them holding back of, of the officer they held back an officer whose wife was in the room dying who had called him for help and he he goes he has his he draws his gun and they they hold him back they yeah. hold him back and remove him just as they held back all the parents outside yes tackled uh, tackled handcuffed parents. yeah one escaped went in the school got her kids out got out they're holding all these people back and it'd be one thing if they're holding them back because they're doing something right they're just holding them back 
for the sake of holding them back. They right. don't do anything. There were multiple different kinds of law enforcement agencies on the scene. There was all the reporting about how uh, they had a SWAT team and all of this military gear for this relatively small town, and none of that amounted to anything when it came down to their ability to save lives, which many observers have noted could have been saved if they had behaved differently in that moment. So, you know, I think a lot of people are waiting with bated breath to see what the accountability actually will look like in this town. And it is frustrating that now, you know, so many weeks, you know, months out right. that we're still waiting. It, it, this whole thing is a is a good lesson in uh, in that just investing a community with more police resources, more law enforcement resources, which is an impulse I understand, it, you know, given that crime is rising in some cities, uh, there's a lot of concern about what's going on in the streets, et cetera. And I, you know, I, I, <laughs> I'm not for defunding the police. But you say, you know, if you, you want to throw more money at the problem, or oh yeah, get them, get them a fancy SWAT gear, get them a tank, get them yeah. all this stuff. Do they use that to stop actual danger, to stop yeah. actual violence, or do they use that to just? I mean, harass people who, you know, with the not wrong door raids, Breonna Taylor type stuff. Yeah, or the, the beating that we talked the about yesterday. The beating we talked about yesterday, in, in yeah. Arkansas. Yeah, look, I think this, this moment is really instructive because so often these conversations about policing pretend that one camp doesn't care about crime and another right. camp does care about crime. And I think that when we're talking about children, there's a little bit less of that. There's an acknowledgement that, of course, everybody wants the right outcome here. Nobody wants children dead and on these teachers as well. Nobody wants people to be punched randomly in the street, whether it's by people who have mental health issues or people who don't have mental health issues. Nobody wants to live in a city where they're, or anywhere where they're perpetually feeling right. apprehensive about crime. The real question is, what kinds of interventions are well calculated to actually improve conditions? And what we've seen in Ovalde and in so many places around the country is that simply throwing money at police forces doesn't actually do that. And what whether it's a defender or an abolished person or someone who just wants criminal justice reform, the argument that people have been making for years is that we do have evidence about the kinds of interventions that do bring down crime, and it has to do with addressing some of these root causes, including mental health crises, including um, some kinds of community policing, and including potentially when we look at this Ovalde case, and we'll see what happens down the line, but certain kinds of you know, gun measures that prevent 18-year-olds, people who tend to want to go back to schools to do shootings because that's the environment that they're comfortable with because they're so young, from getting weapons of mass destruction. Because in this case, you can't say, well, they needed better training. They had training. They yeah. had the exact training yeah. for how to handle a mass shooter situation, a training that has been honed over the last 20 years of these things. Tragically. Um, they knew exactly how they were supposed to react. They were armed. They were. They had the right equipment. There were tons of them. Tons of them. This school district had its own police force. Yep. And they just didn't do what they were supposed to do. And this is why people say, you know, you can't reform this. You, yeah. you don't have to agree with that thinking, but that is literally why so many, you know, abolitionists or defunders say this is a system that can't be reformed because at a certain point there's no amount of kind of sensitivity training that can get to some of the structural reasons why police departments act in these ways. And some broader, I think, cultural qualities about some of these police forces. You know, there was that image of the person with the Punisher screen on their phone, and I don't want to read too much into mm -hmm. that sort of thing, but, you know, is there a culture that relishes the kind of vengeance that the Punisher 
uh, represents and a kind of does it, does, do police forces attract the kind of people who are out to satisfy some kind of personal aggression as opposed to wanting to really be in a role of making why, communities safer? Why don't we safer? bring that aggression to the deranged teenager who was murdering children well, it's and not bring that aggression to the guy outside the CVS or the gas station or whatever it was right. yesterday who's, right. having his, who's unarmed and having his face bashed into the pavement. Right. Well, I think it's, it's because <laughs> Let's it's, channel it's, that aggression toward keeping people safe. Well, it's a, it's a performative shtick, and I think that probably in both instances, what you need is not aggression, but like strategic analytical thinking about how to solve a problem, which I don't think is something that most police departments regretfully mm. solve for. Well, it makes a good, probably makes a good uh, argument for a class action lawsuit. This, yeah. this uh, behavior be from the police being so outside uh, outside of what they were supposed to do. So obviously discordant from what they were trained to do, right. what they were instructed to do, what they were prepared to do. So we'll see. Yeah, we'll be following this. And, and we'll have more Rising in Your Radar <laughs> coming up next. Indeed. Well, Brianna, I'm dying to know what's on your radar. <laughs> well, Robbie, something good finally happened. <laughs> now look, bare minimum Biden didn't live up to his campaign promises. He failed to cancel all student debt for public school graduates making less than $125,000 a year, like he promised. He failed to cancel all student debt for HBCU graduates under that same income threshold. But... Yesterday, he did announce a plan to cancel $10,000 of debt for all student debtors earning under $125,000 a year, as well as $20,000 for recipients of Pell Grants. Pell Grants, of course, are federal grants awarded only to undergraduate students who display exceptional financial need. And I got to say, I have a lot of complaints about Biden, but this from a press conference yesterday was pretty based. Mr. President, is this unfair to people who paid their student loans or chose not to take out loans? Is it fair to people who, in fact, uh, do not own multi-billion dollar businesses to see why these guys give them all a tax base? Is that fair? What do you think? What about people who paid their loans, though, struggle to pay their loans, and now others don't have to? Biden's right. The logic articulated by those reporters that someone helping out some people is unfair because other people exist is so anti-solidaristic, so anti-worker, so anti-community that it deserves the scorn that Biden served up. Should childless people pay for those with children? Should people who don't have special needs pay for families with kids who do need more support? Should non-drivers pay for roads? Should people without homes support all the mortgage subsidies that have been pitched to good, wholesome, middle-class Americans for years? Truly, what is the difference there? Well, we'll get back to that difference later in this radar, but first, let's review the public reaction to this policy, shall we? Now again, Biden literally did less than what he campaigned on. And elites who desperately want American workers to be deeply indebted, to have no social mobility, no ability to start their own businesses and get out from under the thumbs of Wall Street control, still wet their collective pamper. House Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy tweeted, who will be forced to pay for Biden's debt transfer scam? Hardworking Americans who already paid off their debts or never took on student loan debt in the first place. Well, I can't reply better than podcaster Brian Tyler, who replied, your party added $2 trillion to the debt 
to give permanent tax handouts to billionaires and major corporations. And you're mad that President Biden is taking some action to help relieve a generation of working Americans from mountains of debt? South Carolina Senator Tim Scott tweeted, President Biden's plan to cancel student debt is no compassionate freebie for Americans. It's a $300 billion economic burden placed on lower and middle class families in the midst of a recession. $300 billion? <laughs> That's nothing compared to the $700 billion in PPP loans that were forgiven, the overwhelming majority of which went to millionaires or billionaires like Paul Pelosi, Khloe Kardashian, and Jared Kushner, the subject of my radar yesterday. Mitt Romney, famous for being so rich that he has an elevator for his cars. Mitt Romney, who founded Bain Capital, an investment firm that staged an epic wealth grab, destroyed jobs, and stuck others with the bill. He had the audacity to tweet, sad to see what's being done to bribe the voters. Biden's student loan forgiveness plan may win Democrats some votes, but it fuels inflation, foots taxpayers with other people's financial obligations, is unfair to those who pay their own way, and creates irresponsible expectations. Bribe? Now it's a bribe to do something to help the middle class, the lower 60% of earners who will benefit from this policy, as we discussed on the show yesterday with Sparky Abraham. It seems that conservatives want to divide Americans up into makers and takers not to reward the middle-class makers who did the quote-unquote right thing and went to college, but to excuse their choice to do nothing for anybody. And Senator Rick Scott, Republican from Florida, literally tweeted, from a yacht in Italy, <laughs> Democrats pushed to forgive student loans won't solve the problem. We need real solutions that don't create an added burden on taxpayers. My college act will actually hold universities accountable for student outcomes and force them to answer for skyrocketing tuition costs. Scott, of course, famously got 100% of the purchase price price of superyachts written off as a bonus depreciation in the 2017 tax bill. Julian Castro's communication strategist uh, summarized Scott's out-of-touch sentiment beautifully, uh, tweeting, pay off your own debt, says a generation of pundits that went to school when classes were $100 and the minimum wage could finance a mortgage on a two-bedroom home. <laughs> and he's right. College costs have skyrocketed exponentially over the last 30 years. But I will give at least Rick Scott some credit for acknowledging the student debt crisis is real and for offering something in the way of a policy solution. But his plan is a band-aid that does nothing to expand on what should be the goal here. What progressives and conservative populists alike should be using this movement to springboard to, and that's free public college. Look, as I've said before, people who point out that student debt cancellation is a short-term solution that doesn't get at the root of the problem are absolutely right. That's why I have been a longtime advocate of Bernie Sanders' plan, which combines full student debt cancellation with a free public college program financed entirely by a relatively small tax on the uber-rich. In addition to funding free public college, Bernie's plan would cap student loan interest rates going forward at 1.80%. And you cannot overstate how important these interventions would be in preventing the same debt crisis from reemerging 5, 10, or 15 years after this cancellation. After all, this $10,000 of cancellation amounts to merely one year of interest for millions of borrowers. And it will be back on their balance sheets in no time flat if interest rates as high as 8% aren't taken care of. 
That's exactly why the loan servicing industry lobbied for the loan cancellation amount to be $10,000. This was literally their plan designed to keep their profits flowing. All they want is for the moratorium to end so they can start collecting again. And they know that $10,000 is nothing in the grand scheme of the interest payments they still stand to collect. Truly free public college means anyone who takes out debt going forward truly would have no one to blame but, but themselves for that choice. Unlike now where public colleges are not always available and still cost a pretty penny, it was literally cheaper for me to go to certain well-endowed private institutions than the average in-state tuition. Free public colleges also have an equalizing effect, devaluing the power of institutions like Harvard, which, people, which, uh, which merely peddle prestige to elites while leaving out much of the working class. 15% of the Harvard class of 2019 were legacy students. And more than half of Harvard students come from the top 10% of the income distribution. Other countries with free higher education have less class division and more regard for those who opt for vocational educations, the more equal places with more class mobility. This is the populist dream we should be working toward, and which we were working toward before Ronald Reagan, as governor of California, purposefully worked to make public universities and colleges inaccessible to the poor making poor and working class people dependent on federal loans was a way to disrupt working class populist equality movements in the 1970s. And whatever you think about those movements, it was all of our kids who suffered. Now it's the moment for everyone excited about student debt relief to join with those who raised real concerns that this is but a stopgap solution and push for more meaningful legislation to be passed that gets to the root of the problem. If you were objecting in good faith to student debt cancellation on the grounds that it didn't get at the root of the issue, you should push your congressional representatives to back Bernie Sanders' free public college bill, which was introduced in the House in 2021. The bill is fully funded by the Tax on Wall Street Speculation Act, which would levy a 0.5% tax on stock trades and a 0.1% fee on bond trades and a 0.005% fee on derivative transactions. That would raise up to $2.4 trillion over the next decade, according to a summary of the bill. This is a moment where momentum is building. The bullies who want socialism for the rich and a miserable, precarious life for the 99% are losing ground. Things have become so painfully unequal that it's difficult for even conservatives to justify. It's why we see conservative states like Florida voting for a $15 minimum wage. It's why we see conservative states like Kansas voting down ballot initiatives that would ban abortion in the state constitution. This is a moment where the people can start making the government work for us again. But it won't happen if we can't put aside petty partisan fighting triggered by elites who want nothing more than to protect the status quo in which they thrive. And that gets me back to a point alluded to at the top of this segment. Why is it that elites are so invested in keeping us indebted? Why do they support tax breaks for homeowners and families, even though those often target the same middle-income folks targeted here and not the poor? Why are elites in both parties mad at student debt cancellation for targeting the middle class when middle class is usually considered to be the most politically deserving group? Well, the difference is that elites of both parties have a deeply vested interest in preventing mobility for working people. 
They push home ownership and childbirth both because they serve capital, big business, industry. None of it is about supporting a cultural or personal desire for family. It's about convincing otherwise precarious people to maintain an economic status quo. You see, once you've bought a house, once you've had kids, once you have student debt, your options to leave your job, to start a business, to move, to become free are limited. And that's why the government will tell you or even now force you to have a child, but won't actually help you with childcare. It doesn't want you to be able to work from home. It doesn't want you to be free from the yoke of employer-based healthcare. No, it wants you in the office with less free time than anyone in the free world. Because when people have time to think, to innovate, to start businesses of their own without fear that they'll get sick and go bankrupt from medical bills, they no longer can be under corporations' control. Without the threat of student debt and medical debt, how could they even get you to join the military and fight in their unjust wars? Sound conspiratorial? Well, look at the evidence. Liberal lion Malcolm Gladwell, who has waxed poetic about he, how he loves to write his best-selling books from cafes, lectured normal folks to get back to work. What have you reduced your life to, he asked the commuting masses. Democrats bragged about having ch having child poverty with the child tax credits, but despite being overwhelmingly popular, those tax credits were quickly on the chopping block. Can't have parents free enough, uh, free up enough money that they, one of them can stay home or work one fewer job. The market demands a desperate labor force, not a happy one. And just this week, they admitted it. Ken Klippenstein and John Schwartz at The Intercept just broke this news yesterday. On an earnings call, real estate CEO and president of Douglas Emmett Incorporated, a real estate corporation worth over $3 billion and based in Santa Monica, California, said a recession could be good if it comes with a level of unemployment that puts employers back in the driver's seat and allows them to get all their employees back into the office. Recession could be good? Employers back in the driver's seat? That's code for be able to exploit their employees without their employees having any recourse. And that's the whole game. The reason so many elites hated the stimulus checks is not because they drove inflation. You see, they don't tie the PPP checks for billionaires to inflation in the same way, or Trump's tax cuts for the rich, which added more to the deficit for absolutely no reason than anything that's happened before or since. And they aren't talking about the supply chain crisis or the war in Ukraine, two key causes of inflation. No, they talk about spending because they don't want working people to have options. Because when working people have options, they can demand higher salaries. When workers have options, they can bargain for a bigger piece of the pie. This is why union organizing is so important. It gives workers who individually have very little power to, uh, very little power rather, to attain the power of collective bargaining, the power to withhold their labor together and force employers to share profits more equitably. In the golden age of labor, the 1950s and the 1960s, CEOs earned about 30 times more than their employees. Want to guess what that ratio is now? Well over 300 to 1. And this is while workers are working more hours with less to show for it. COVID relief unexpectedly empowered labor, and now elites are trying to put a lid on it in whatever way they can, restarting student loan payments, canceling support for families with children, and intentionally, intentionally driving up unemployment. 
We need to recognize this and use the student debt victory to continue to pull together as a community of working people and keep demanding more. In the richest country in the history of the world, education should be free. Yes, even for rich kids, just like public high school is free for the rich should they choose to attend. And I gotta say, I think rich people would be better people if they did attend public high schools. And just like libraries are free for the rich and services of firefighters, it's our country and we get to make it work for us. Let's follow through on legitimate concerns that student debt relief is only a partial solution and finish the job. Let's make America great again by establishing a well-educated, able workforce, one we can be proud of, one that can build semiconductors and make doctors and plumbers and invent medicines and fix our roads and bridges and create clean energy solutions, one that can compete on a global stage without relying on the power of American imperialism. I truly believe we can do all that, and I believe that free public college is a solid first step. So what do you think, Robbie? Have I addressed some of your concerns that you raised well, yesterday? Well, look, I appreciate uh, the point you made in the middle of your radar that, uh, and, and that you support changes to the system, because that's really where I'm coming from. I don't understand how this can be done with, and, and I listened to Biden's remarks yesterday where he, he, you know, he talks about how, he speaks eloquently about how people are, are mired in this debt, they're drowning, they were swindled, they were scammed, they can't get out of it. Okay, fine, but how can we do this then without fixing any of the underlying incentives that, like, shouldn't we end the scam? The scam being this subsidized student uh, loan process that the government, it's a government policy. The government could just end it. Yeah. If it's so, if it's so um, vicious, if it's so, if it's such a swindle, we should stop doing the swindle. Yeah. So I, I, I would, I, I think the be, if you're going to make the most powerful steel man case for doing this, I would say it should be accompanied by a change to the systems, or else we'll be right back here in a couple years. I, I completely agree. Now, I don't think that you should, you know, get rid of stopgap measures mm -hmm. and have nothing, because the reason that plan was put into effect, even though it has these horrible downstream consequences that we're all living with now, is because the reality that no one wants to talk about, and all of the people who say go into colleges and pushing people to go to colleges elitist, I mean... Yes, I want to live in a world where workers can earn as much as people who go to college. I want to li live in a world where we respect people who have vocational training. And I do, and I fight for the rights of those people more so than a lot of people who claim populism. But the reality is there's, I believe, a $30,000 more year average income that's earned by people who do go to college. So I think that your ability right. to go should simply be driven by your desire to go. Do you want to go to college? Do you want to go to vocational school? What kind of job but do you want But if everybody goes to college, it'll cancel out that advantage. Well, yes, but you know, I personally think there's other reasons also just to have people, regardless mm -hmm. of what you want to do professionally, to go to college. But I don't, I'm not in a place right now on this show where I necessarily want to be getting into the kind of the philosophical yeah. reasons to go to college. But even if you only care about it from a pure training the workforce perspective, enriching America's workforce so that we can do more and compete more in the world. So, so the, the lever I would pull ideally to control college costs would actually be at the state level. Um, I view state schools are state institutions, they are government institutions, state legislatures should cap, I mean, frankly, they should drastically lower um, what the tuition price is. I, I agree with you. I wouldn't make all college free everywhere, but I would say that a state school in a in that state should be affordable to the people who pay taxes there. And right now, they're, they're, that used to be true. That's not true anywhere now. Yeah. And 
it w I would say it's on state legislatures to act. They can, universities can let some employees go. Maybe some uh, Liz Wolf, uh, who we have on the show frequently, my colleague at Reason, she was tweeting about this. Uh, uh, UVA's vice president for diversity, equity, inclusion makes $357,000 a year. Mm. UC Berkeley's vice chancellor for equity, inclusion makes $325,000 a year. Mm. None of these institutions have raised educator salaries whatsoever. Professors have, it, yeah, that's it doesn't wild. go up. The salaries are insane. They're insane. And they, and, and these places, it's not all, it's th these I've looked. And These institutions clear, I think have... the salaries are insane because the salaries are insane, not because I'm making value judgments about what kind of jobs that people do. But I, I completely but agree. But if they have 100, why... they'll have 100 other employees yeah. all making 100, 200K. Uh, in addition to that person to do to do these roles yeah, that are non-educational. There's a roles. huge problem where adjuncts aren't being paid properly yeah. and they're being treated like professors with the burdens of professors but without any of the support or the, the tenure protections or anything like that if we care about free speech and the ability of people to actually uh, use these, these, these mm -hmm. contexts, these universities to drive public conversation in productive ways. I completely agree, which is why I love Bernie's plan. It was all right there. And this whole time I felt a little bit you know, hamstrung, because in the context of the Bernie campaign, all of these objections that people are making were mooted by the fact that he did have a comprehensive plan to deal with all of this. And what Biden is experiencing right now, some of the blowback, Pierre Christopher is getting a lot of support, but some of the blowback that he is getting is because he thought he could pick and choose from these kind of plans. No, Bernie had a plan for that. Bernie had a holistic vision that really wasn't appreciated by all the technocrats that spent a lot of time bloviating on the cable news. Uh, so. Here is the plan. It's already been introduced in the House. Anybody who is concerned about interest rates at public institutions and more broadly, like as you just said, should embrace the fact that Bernie has a cap on interest rates, should embrace the fact that he has a, a funding scheme on attacks on Wall Street to make sure that public colleges are free and frankly should be, you know, the, the problem is that even though they're available, they are still very, very expensive. So people yeah, should have, be having no debt coming out of public yeah. institutions whatsoever. I know that you're a public institution grad, and you know I, I, I've yeah. had many friends who went to your your institution, and they did have debt graduating from the University of Michigan. So yeah. there are there's a solution out there, people. It's right there in front of you, and well, I hope that we can use this moment to capitalize on it. Well, we're going to keep uh, talking about this issue. I think we're having a debate on it a little bit later with some guests. Uh, obviously, we're both <laughs> fired up about it. We were uh, we weren't arguing on Twitter. But I was arguing with Ryan, and Baccio was arguing. So Baccio agrees with me. Ryan agrees with you. Only television show there is where there's actual differences, serious differences of opinion. I will be back with more of that after this. Earlier this week, Arkansas officers, including two deputies and an officer who were shown on video beating a man during an arrest, were suspended with pay. We showed the clip on Rising earlier this week and we will pull it up again now. In it, you can see three officers punching a man in the head and kneeing him several times as they pinned him down. Oh, just horrible to watch. Founder and executive director of Civil Rights Corps and author of Usual Cruelty, Alec Karakatsanis, who is founder and executive director of Civil Rights Corps and author of Usual Cruelty, he tweeted about the matter, writing, what is shown in the Arkansas police beating video is utterly normal. It's what dozens of my own clients and their families described to me over the years. Everyone who works in the system knows about it. After Rodney King and calls for accountability, we got the 1994 crime bill. After George Floyd, some Democrats are now pushing for another 100,000 more militarized cops, just as reproductive health is criminalized. And Alec is here with us now to weigh in. Welcome. Thank you for having me. 
Yeah, uh, thanks for joining us. So you say you have seen things like this, and I, I, I mean, I know you're right. Obviously, we, we see uh, similarly, occasionally, violent videos like this. When they're caught on camera, they, they go viral. They enter the public domain. But if we're only, you know, we're only seeing the ones where it happens to be someone records it, how much more common is it? It's absolutely ubiquitous. Uh, in all of my time, in my years as a public defender, in my years as a civil rights lawyer representing people charged with the crimes all over the country, this is the kind of thing that happens every single day in every single city in the country. We had a little joke at each of the public defender's offices that I was at, where if you saw certain charges, like for example, resisting arrest or assault on a police officer, it was almost certain that your client was gonna be in the hospital. And almost to a fault, every time I went into the neighborhood and investigated, I talked to you know, several witnesses each time. I would talk to the client, I would talk to their family. They always had the same story, which is that they were brutally beaten um, by the cops, often tased, sometimes shot. Um, uh, and the they were charged in order to basically cover it up because in, in many places, um, it makes it much more difficult, if not impossible, to sue the police for brutal beatings if you're also charged with a crime. Yeah, and this is part of the conversation we've been having for a while over qualified immunity. After the George Floyd uprising in 2020, many folks who were perhaps unfamiliar with the ubiquity of these kinds of moments were horrified by what they saw on camera. And there was a lot of public support for some substantial criminal justice reform. Unfortunately, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, which many folks, again, didn't think went far enough, didn't pass either, in part because of these conversations, these uh, disputes about qualified immunity with conservatives feeling very strongly that they did not want to get rid of it. Uh, what do you make of that ongoing debate? I think obviously qualified immunity is a ridiculous doctrine. Um, it was invented out of whole cloth by the Supreme Court. It has no basis in the history or text of, of the Constitution. It has no basis in the history or text of of U.S. statute 1983, which is the provision that the Supreme Court um, has applied it to. Um, it, it's a complete joke. I, I think it's it's much more important to understand, though, that the, the qualified immunity only applies to civil liability. It, it, mm. The only relevance of that doctrine is whether you can sue an individual cop um, for harming you um, or other public employees and what legal standard is applied to that case. It's often treated by people on the left as some kind of panacea um, for everything that's wrong with, with police misconduct. But even in the places that don't have qualified immunity, um, you're not seeing criminal charges for most mm. of these incidents of brutality. You're not seeing police brutality end. Um, really, all qualified immunity does is shift who pays you if you are beaten. And, and, and in many places, even when there is no qualified immunity, the police are just indemnified by the local government or various forms of insurance. And so it, it's actually, um, I think, kind of a red herring to talk about the issue of police violence and police brutality, which has plagued this country since well before the Supreme Court invented the doctrine of qualified immunity as some sort of solution to this much more significant problem. I just want to also note that it's not just like a conservative or liberal issue. I mean, the biggest proponents of ending qualified immunity are people like the Libertarian Cato mm. Institute and others who have a much more like sort of originalist view and perspective um, on um, sort of textual interpretation of law and also um, who, you know, at least in that one area are more um, able to see the incredible ineffectiveness and inefficiency and absolute horror of, of state-sponsored violence. 
So what would you suggest, Alec? Is it, what, what, is, what is causing some of the lack of accountability? Is it just these structural issues with how police are recruited and the culture of these police institutions? Is it a criminal justice system that uses a kind of a, you know, a reasonable man standard when assessing whether or not a police member has acted appropriately? And there's this po reasonable policeman idea that basically allows them to act with impunity. What, what would you focus on as one of the core the core things to shift to, to have better outcomes here? I think there's a very important fundamental point um, that's, that's much more basic than, than any of the things that we're talking about now. And that is that the vast bulk of police violence is utterly legal. So for example, in this country, there are more arrests over the last couple of decades for marijuana possession than for all so-called violent crime combined. Think about what it means to be arrested for marijuana possession or anything else. Um, you are caged, you have metal chains put on your body, you're separated from your children, you're put in a cage where you're unlikely to be given any medical care or your ongoing medications, you lose your job, you lose your house, you're um, extraordinarily likely to be sexually assaulted or to contract an infectious disease. This is perfectly legalized violence. This is the vast bulk of what police do. I don't think most people understand that 96% of what police do is what they themselves call nonviolent. Only 4% of their time is dealt with things like what they call violent crime. The vast bulk of it is, is low level enforcement and surveillance and control and sort of brutal repression of mostly poor people. So that's the, what, what is often lost in these discussions is most of the police violence is legal. So if I was just walking down the street smoking a cigarette, the Constitution protects me from even being stopped by the police. But if I put a little marijuana in that cigarette, all of a sudden the law allows me to be seized, to have metal chains put on my body, to be taken away from my church and my school and my home and my family and my job. That is violent. In any other context, it would meet the legal definition of kidnapping. So when we talk about the need to change the conception of policing in this country, it's much deeper than this. And that leads me to you know, a more direct answer to your question, which is, um, what is the actual purpose of policing? One of the reasons that there has never been a single reform in the history of American policing since 1900 that has significantly reduced police brutality is that most people have entirely the wrong conception of what the police force is trying to do. Most people think that the police force is a genuine, highly trained, well-organized um, government uh, response to control violence and to protect people against crime. That's actually a, a marketing ploy that the police developed in conjunction with police unions in the second half of the 20th century. Yeah. In the first half of the 20th century, it was much more widely understood that police had like three main functions. Um, early on, um, they were supposed to brutally uh, crush and, 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 and surveil and control um, newly freed black people and, and, and people who are running away from slavery. Um, then as the 20th century began, their main function in the Northeast and throughout the Midwest was to control striking workers and laborers. And, and the sort of third main function of police is to protect the private property and wealth of people who own things. And so those are the historical functions of police. It's only actually relatively recently that they developed this idea that their goal is to serve and protect people. So if you have a force whose actual goals are to control the poor and to crush social movements like they did with the Black Panthers and, and the New Left and environmental movements that we can see them doing with, the, with um, protests to the abortion rulings and environmental protests now. If you actually understand the function of policing as 
its goal is to violently crush people and, and to crush people who don't have power in our society, then you understand why there has never been a single successful reform. So we need to stop talking about things like the reasonable man standard and the qualified immunity standard. And we need to have a serious social conversation about what are the police doing? Whose interests are they protecting? And why is it that the vast bulk of what they do has nothing to say about what they actually tell us their purpose is? Hmm. Hmm. I don't know. <laughs> I think that goes a little further than I would be willing to concede even as a, a libertarian. I mean, do doesn't the concept of policing, I mean, it doesn't even originate, originate in America, right? It originates in, in what, the English tradition in like the 17th, 18th century, right? I mean, that, that was not all, that was about keeping street cities and streets safe to some degree what wasn't it or am i am i wrong i think in in early english history it was really about controlling poor people and debtors uh, it was a, it was a way for the rich to sort of um use state violence in a more professionalized way i think what i was talking about in particular is really the history of u.s policing which i think is beautifully captured in the history our enemies in blue or the end of policing yeah, two are great yeah. two great books i think the if you look at the actual history of U.S. policing, what I was really talking about was what I would call the professionalization of U.S. police over the course of the 20th century. They went from becoming sort of small-time um, roving bands of people that really served the interests of particular political bosses in particular cities mm -hmm. into a massive, organized, unionized, professionalized force that has access to incredibly sophisticated surveillance technology, incredibly sophisticated military weaponry, and if you look at the history of the use of that surveillance, of the military weaponry, if you just look at who police are arresting people for, the, police aren't arresting wealthy people for wage theft, right? They're arresting poor people for shoplifting. Um, even though wage theft is a problem about five times all other property crime combined. They're not arresting wealthy people for tax evasion, even though tax evasion is a problem 63 times all other crime combined, all other property crime combined. So you have to look at the evidence of what police actually do. And, and then you can look at the history of how they unionized and professionalized and developed and went from sort of um, unarmed people walking a local community to highly professionalized, highly organized, mm. highly political actors. Right. Well, these uh, these guys got suspended with pay. Uh, didn't our friend, uh, my friend David Weigel, when he Washington Post reporter, tweeted an offensive joke, suspended without pay for an entire yeah. month? D Dave Weigel <laughs> got the book thrown at him harder than these cops. <laughs> beating someone's head in into the sidewalk. Um, Alec, thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And we'll be back with more Rising right after this. Using the authority Congress granted the Department of Education, we will forgive $10,000 in outstanding federal student loans. In addition, students who come from low-income families, which allowed them to qualify to receive a Pell Grant, will have their debt reduced $20,000. Both of these targeted actions are for families who need it the most. I will never apologize for helping Americans working working Americans and middle class, especially not to the same folks who voted for a $2 trillion tax cut that mainly benefited the wealthiest Americans and the biggest corporations that slowed the economy, didn't do a hell of a lot for economic growth. Mr. President, is this unfair to people who paid their student loans or chose not to take out loans? Is it fair to people who, in fact, uh, 
do not own the multi-billion dollar businesses that have seen one of these guys get them all at that things? Is that fair? What do you think? That was President Biden at the White House yesterday, announcing perhaps one of the boldest moves by his administration thus far. Student loan forgiveness, a lifeline for the working class, or as some think, just bad economics. Our rising panel joins us now to weigh in. Astrid Taylor is author of Democracy May Not Exist, a political organizer and director of What is Democracy? And Brad Palumbo is policy correspondent for Fee.org and co-founder of Based Politics. Welcome to you both. Thanks. Brad, let's start with you. You know, a lot of people have been pointing not just to the overwhelming sums of money that were forgiven with the PPP program, including to folks like Kim Kardashian and Paul Pelosi and other, you know, very rich uh, elites. They also point to Trump's tax cuts, which were valued at 1.7. Now some people are valuing at 2.3 at an enormous cost to an Americans, which overwhelmingly went to the top percentage of the country. So why so much pushback now that there is a policy that's targeted to get to the bottom 60% of people in the country, people who who were too poor to take out, uh, too poor to pay for college out of pocket, and who had to take out student debt. Yeah, look, maybe actually we have a point of agreement there. I was a critic of PPP from the beginning. I said mm -hmm. it's corporate welfare. Big companies ended up getting the most benefits. It was wildly inefficient. I opposed that. But as far as I'm concerned, two wrongs don't make a right. I think the Trump tax cuts is a whole different story because in that case, you're letting people keep their own money, not giving them someone else's, which is ultimately what taxpayer, uh, what student debt cancellation is. There's no such thing as cancellation. It's a transfer. We can argue for it or against it, but ultimately, according to the Wharton School of Business's analysis, it'll cost taxpayers uh, $300 billion. That averages out to about $2,000 uh, per federal taxpayer. That's a lot of money, and it's mostly helping a relatively more affluent slice of society. The income caps are good, but even with that, according to that Wharton analysis, 73% of the benefits go to the top 60%, which means the bottom 40% right? The working class, the poor, the people that progressives say this is supposed to help get less than a third of that benefit. So, or about a third of that benefit. So it's, it is ultimately a redistribution uh, that helps mostly affluent people on the backs of working class taxpayers who are already struggling right now. So to be clear, Brad, that $2,000 per taxpayer you're talking about is over a 10-year period, and the average student debtor, and correct me if I'm wrong here, uh, Astra, is going to be, uh, you know, who is paying about $300 a month. Many more people are paying much higher amounts than that. Moreover, the analysis that you cited that said the top 60% are being benefited, it's also the bottom 60%, as we spoke about yesterday with Sparky Abraham, because what it really is is the middle, the middle of the country that it's often appealed to through mortgage grants and all kinds of policies for the middle class that are being helped here. So Astra, I, I want to ask you this I give you an, and give you a chance to respond. You know, do you see some inconsistency here between how other kind of tax breaks to the middle classes are pitched, as well as tax breaks for the very rich, like the Trump tax cuts, versus how people are interpreting this tax, uh, tax break, as it were, this listing a loan cancellation for those who took out educational debt? Oh. We can't hear. Hold Astra. on, hold on, Astra. Uh, we got to do that again. When we when we talk about sixty percent, forty percent. Hold on, one 40%. sec. One sec. Hmm. Go ahead. Sorry, when we're talking about sixty percent, forty percent, these numbers are flying around. We're talking about people who took out student loans, right? So these 
student debt is already means tested. Rich people do not take out student debt to go to college. They or their parents more likely are able to pay the cost up front. So, you know, we are already talking about people in need who had to borrow to get an education. Absolutely, there's a, a double standard going on. We see, you know, we did not see anything like this amount of hand wringing over PPP loans. On average, the forgiveness granted was $90,000, but many rich individuals and big corporations got much more than that. You know, of course, there was also all of the bad corporate debt that the government stepped in and purchased at the beginning of the pandemic, the bank bailouts of 2008, which actually launched the debt cancellation movement. So 100%, we see this double standard time and time again. We also need to um, push back on just some of the assumptions that are floating around here too. For example, I, I wanna lift up a piece by Joseph Stiglitz, the Nobel Prize winning economist that just came out today that said, you know, this is, this is not gonna be inflationary at all. If anything, it might reduce inflation precisely because of some of the ways of costing things out, as Brianna said, you know, uh, when we look at this over the long term, you know, this is really, you know, a, a rounding error, error in terms of federal government spending. If I would just hop in with a, a quick response to that, I'd just say that, you know, facts are stubborn things. And the notion that rich people don't have student debt, it's false because people who go on to become rich have student debt. So you're right. If your parents are Bill Gates, you're not going to have student debt. But say that you go and your parents aren't Bill Gates, you become a lawyer and you make 500 grand a year now, you still probably have a lot of undergrad student debt. It's a fact. A University of Chicago study found that full student debt cancellation would benefit the top 20% six times more than the bottom 20%. Most Americans didn't go to college. Only people who went to college benefit from student debt cancellation. And guess what? They make more money. They tend to be more affluent. That's why people go to college. These are the facts of it. We can yeah, defend it, we can debate it, but it benefits affluent people as a matter of fact. And look, like Brad, I was against the PPP loans, I was against the bank bailouts, I was against the auto bailouts, I was against the airline industry bailouts, I'm against you know unfair tax breaks, I want to reduce everybody's taxes and spend less, but I don't want to give special favoritism to any special corporations. I've, you know, and I'm besieged right now on Twitter because I've been complaining about the um, about yeah, because Biden's plan, and it's it's like, like, oh, did you say that when Trump's debts got forgiven? Robbie. Yeah, Trump's a crook, I don't want to be president. Robbie, He's Robbie well, what it is is that a lot of so you people- Say it's Standard, but how is it a double standard I'll, when I've complained I'll, I'll about all those things? I'll explain it to you because the tone Please. and tenor of the way that you're reacting and the way so many people are reacting to this student debt cancellation is qualitatively and quantitatively different than whatever internal frustration or, or moderately expressed frustration you might have had with the PPP loan cancellation. We did not, facts are stubborn things you say, Brad, we did not have this robust public conversation when the PPP loans were canceled without fanfare earlier this year. Reporters were not shouting down Joe Biden, saying why, was it, why is it fair for these millionaires and billionaires who donate to your campaigns and the campaigns of Republicans and Democrats alike and our corporate plutocracy? Why is it so, why is it fair that Paul Pelosi and all of these people get their loans canceled? That is not a conversation so we're having. So the thing is, though, it's not and really Brad, a fair comparison. And if I could comparison. respond to just one of your other points, lawyers, very, very, very few lawyers make $500,000 a year. And I can say this as an attorney myself. I graduated from Harvard Law School at the top, you know, at the top of the profession. And I know almost no one who makes that sum. And when they do make that sum, they pay off their loans. I have colleagues who paid off their loans very quickly because they did, in fact, have very high paying jobs. A few of them really and were able to do so within... now they get to pay so off within, other people's I'm sorry, Brad. 
a few of them were able to do so within, let's say, five years or so. Those people who have high incomes absolutely should be taxed at very high rates. But we should not try to have a corrective tax policy where rich people aren't given windfalls by punishing people, the overwhelming majority of whom are low income and who have to take out loans to go to college. 40% of people who have student debt were unable to finish their degrees, many of them because they were unable to have the money to pay for and finish their degrees. And when you talk about the top 20% of owners, we talk about the 99% versus the 1% precisely because there is such an enormous income gap between the top 1% and the rest of the country. So when you're talking about the top 80% of owners, uh, of, of earners, people who earn 70, 80, $90,000 a year are in that top uh, echelon that you're talking about. And yes, people who do graduate from college tend to earn more money. That's the whole point of graduating the college. And what people are fighting for here is for everyone to have that opportunity to go to college, regardless of how much your parents make and whether they are able to dig into their pockets and mommy and daddy are able to pay for your total tuition um, ride. So Ashton, I want to give you a chance to get in there. that's not the story for a lot of that's a, not the story for a lot of people. The reason it's so vitriolic, this backlash, is because it's personal for people. Joe Biden is making suckers out of people like me. I went this to a public not, college. This is, this where is I not got, true. St- education is a public good that should be publicly funded. It we makes fund you a million dollars more education. over your lifetime. But, it's a personal investment in your own future. Earnings. American, people, American people have been told people that the only path, college, the only path to a decent life. Excuse me, you've spoken a lot. Americans have been told that the only path to the middle class is to pursue higher education. This is why millions of people have done it. And student debt, if you're so concerned about taxes, student debt is a tax on poor and working class people who are trying to pursue upward mobility. And the government, the way loans are structured, uh, causes them to pay off often many more times the principal. <laughs> this is what calling it debt forgiveness is a joke. Many people have paid back many times more what they have, than what they've I borrowed. They are stuck in a debt trap uh, for what should be a public good. Student debtors are taxpayers. These are the same categories of people. People are doing what what they have been told, which is pursue higher education uh, and asking for it. You know, debt cancellation is utterly reasonable given what they have paid. And the ten thousand dollars, you know, twenty thousand in some cases has been granted is a really trivial amount uh, considering um, what people have endured. So I look, I understand where you're coming from, but I I find it so if we're saying that this process of making these loans, it, it, it puts people in ruinous shape. A lot of people, they're so bad. They're so bad off. They're swindled. They're scammed. How, why are we not then changing that system? Isn't that the we thing should. we have to I do? 100% we have to agree change the you. system. We're going to be right Absolutely. back here in five more years. If we like people, if you're saying people should not take these loans, then the government should not make these loans. I, I would support that policy. Yes, the government should not make these loans. It should fund higher education directly. It's far more efficient than you get rid of the predatory loan servicers, the profiteers. And when you fund higher education with public money, you can say, keep the cost down, institutions. Stop rising tuition. You can say, stop underpaying your staff. You know, stop exploiting your workers. There can be conditions on public money. Right now, we're you know funding education through a very inefficient system right, by subsidizing this lending program. Let's get rid of that. Let's get rid of all the bureaucracy and the, the red tape. We can save hundreds of millions of dollars a year by getting rid of the draconian debt collection system that is just pushing people further into poverty. Let's re, uh, reallocate those funds to education. Uh, the Department of Education should be in the business of providing education, not 
you know, lending and debt collection. Brad, I, I think you were going to bring up a, a, your own situation, and uh, if that's not the case, feel free to react otherwise. But you know, y you and other people I've seen online are sharing their stories right now of uh, you know all the lengths they went to to not accrue massive debt that's going to be forgiven, to making different educate either you know paying it some other way or, or choosing to go to a different institution, one that is affordable. I paid off my debt. I just want to say that. I paid, I paid off, off my, my debt. I don't want anyone well. else to have to do that. I, everybody paid that, off their debt. I paid off my debt. <laughs> that's great. My only point is that millions of Americans right now are at home feeling like absolute suckers. Because I went to a state school where I got a scholarship. I didn't have millionaire parents either. Uh, I worked as a security guard nights from a week before my school started. I graduated in three years with a credit overload, all to avoid student debt. And I wish I could take back those 24-hour shifts I worked on long weekends uh, because now, you know, I should have just ran up the charge and uh, gotten 10K in federal loans and then had Uncle Sam take care of it. And it, the thing is, we're not spiteful. It's not like we just don't want other people to have nice things. It's yes, right. That's not the case. We yes, don't want to pay for it. <laughs> We don't want to pay more in taxes so that y'all don't have to pay back the return on your investment that will earn you a million more Brad, dollars over Brad, your average. Brad, do you make over four hundred thousand dollars a year? No, because, I do not. Because Joe Biden has promised not to raise taxes for anyone who earns less than four hundred thousand dollars a year. And we already know so that's not th true. There's this really interesting dynamic that's happening right now. That for public policy reasons, Joe Biden and many people have agreed on both sides of the aisle that four hundred thousand dollars represents. Uh, some kind of middle-class status below which everybody shouldn't have their taxes raised. Now, I would quibble with that number, but it seems very peculiar that when it comes to student debt cancellation, anybody who earns over $125,000 is apparently a richie rich who doesn't deserve to have this benefit, but $400,000 is, is the level. So this is a point that a lot of people in this movement have been making for a long time. If you think that the tax system is regressive, if you think that there are some outlier cases where people, recent graduates or whatever, who are pretty affluent, who do have debt but have a lot of earning potential are going to get a windfall, why not just tax their income or even better tax their wealth since that's a better predictor of who or who is actually suffering in the world, right? Because income is precarious. Why not just have a wealth tax or a, million, a billionaire tax, which is a very popular bipartisan policy, instead of trying to enact tax policy through this policy, which is supposed to be reforming our education system? Brad? Yeah, look, because those those taxes may be formally levied on, you know, billionaires or on wealth, but they have economic ramifications that hurt people throughout the economic spectrum. And Biden has already broken his promise, like this 400K, uh, the raising taxes, Joint Committee on Taxation. All these people have found the IRS increase will hurt the middle class. The There's, corporate tax hikes he's enacting will be say. borne in part by workers. Economists that agree. But that's very yeah, disputed. But can you talk about how um, people are going to be hurt? You said that these policies are going to hurt the uh, hurt the worker. How, how so? By because they'll have to pay more in taxes to pay off but, somebody but else's debt. They Ultimately, they'll have more debt. They'll have more money printing, or they'll have directly have more taxes. The reason, all people, the reason, the Amer the reason so. American the people are in us. debt is because there's not enough federal spending for the things people need, like education, health care, housing, transportation. Federal spending is actually what will help reduce personal debt in uh, the, the fact that we are forced to debt finance these necessities of life. The American people are not going to be hurt if billionaires are taxed. And that money is it's put not into just public services. But, but the fact is, is we don't need to tax billionaires. We can spend federal money on the things we need right now. Do, do you support We're billionaires We're $30 trillion tax, in debt. Brad? We've been doing that. It's not working out great. Brad, Brad do you support a billionaires tax? No. 
Okay. <laughs> this, is, this is where we are. It will have economic ramifications of... far beyond just billionaires. Bre but, but, Brad, like, I, I Brianna, respect... you could confiscate the entire network. It won't even hurt billionaires. They'll still be rich. And you They'll still be able to buy more yachts than they could ever months. use. Brad, nobody's talking about the confiscating rich. anybody's net worth. Elizabeth Warren's billionaire tax was two cents. Two cents but of every point dollar is, if you over took like it all, 500 you million. Fund the government for even a year. But wait, wait a minute, you Brad. You have it to was... tax more than just the rich. I, I, have, a, I have a hard time. Federal to... government can spend without taxation. That's why we have deficits. The question Your is, are deficits used to enrich regular people or rich people? Brad, that's literally, that's literally not true. I'm, I'm really sorry, but there are. You said facts are stubborn. You're ignoring the a lot of economic realities here. There is a disproportionate influence, emphasis on money that is given to working people and ignoring money that is given to PPPs. There are millionaires. Well, how are we ignoring that? Minute. We said we were wait against it. Wait a minute. It's not about it whether you're for it or against it. The point is that that conversation is the conversation about whether or not that's inflationary is never had. We're not sitting here talking about the supply chain crisis, which is largely out of a lot of people's control, and how inflationary that is. We're not talking about the Ukraine war and how inflationary that is on gas prices. we in that? Wait a minute. Right here in the context of this conversation. So I, I respect concerns about inflation, but they seem a little bit in bad faith when they're only brought up in the context of this one time that a transfer is being given to people who are working, people who are debtors, people who are trying to take on education as the uh, education loans as they've been instructed to do for decades by a country that didn't want to actually deal with an unemployment crisis and economic uh, precarity among many groups of people who were then ushered into these loans and to go to college. And now, Brad, you're sitting here telling me that you don't, you're worried about the deficit and you're worried about inflation, you're worried about spending, but you're not worried enough about very rich people spending to actually want to tax them and pay for some of these social services that make our country better. And, I mean, and Google, I think that is not true that I or Brad or most of the guests we have on from the right. Last year. I can't uh, control other people. I've been consistent. So I, and most of the guests we have on from the right are against the PPP loans, the spending on Ukraine. We rail against... You want the poor. Astra is right. Having to take out debt to go to college is a to tax taxes. on working people. If I you go can't to make NYU, up definitions. Wait, or, or That's not what a tax is. A tax this, isn't optional. You can't no, choose to have a tax. because here's what happens. Someone like me, I paid more to go to college than someone, my classmate sitting next to me in the chair whose parents were rich. Because I didn't pay. the. Let's, let's talk about law school because I actually paid all of my law school tuition. My mother helped with undergrad. But I paid... I, if I paid over the, a 10-year loan, I paid $240,000 on a $180,000 degree because of interest. A rich kid pays $180,000 for the same education I have. That's what happens when we have interest rates. I had a 7.5 loan and an 8.5 loan interest rate coming out of college in 2007, going into law school in 2008. That's what we're talking about. So instead of having people who have less money having to pay more for the same services and opportunities, we should provide it free through the public college system per Astra's point, but in the interim, get some relief for these debtors. And to the extent that you're concerned about the deficit and funding of those kinds of things, there is always the option to tax the rich. There's always the option, as Bernie had in his plan, to tax uh, Wall Street transactions in order to fund free public college. But nobody ever wants to do that because there's no solutions coming out of the right. At the end of the day, you just want it to live in a world where only rich people can go to college. No, I don't. I have plenty of solutions we can talk about to end the cost of college end the administrative bloat, you know, and the federal subsidies that have jacked up the cost. I agree with you. There's a problem. We can even talk about forgiving interest on federal loans. 
I'm not saying there's no problem here, but I will say big government intervention caused a lot of it in the first place, and a taxpayer bailout at the worst possible time isn't a good idea just because we've done bad things in the past. A one-off taxpayer bailout without any reforms to the system whatsoever. Astra will give you the last word. Look, this is a problem where the solution is incredibly obvious. We can use federal funds to solve the problem at the source by funding full public higher education for everyone who wants to attend. I totally believe that people should be able to uh, live dignified lives to, to earn a living wage without having, go, without having to go to college. But in this world, we need college educated people. We need nurses, we need teachers, we need therapists. We need all sorts of uh, career fields that require higher education. We need lawyers who can go into uh, you know, to be public defenders and not just work for big corporations. Uh, and the fact is spending that federal money will make us all richer in the long run. It's good for the government to do good things. Uh, this amount of relief is a great first step, but, you know, we're going to come for the rest of it. So get ready, y'all. All right. That was the fiery debate we had promised our viewers on this subject that we are all pretty passionate about. So Astra, Brad, thank you so much for participating. Thank you, guys. Thanks. And we'll have more Rising in just a minute. Yesterday, Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene tweeted that she had been swatted just after 1 a.m. According to NBC, police rushed to Greene's Georgia home on Wednesday after a false report of a shooting there, authorities said, calling it an incident of swatting. Mm. The police report shows two separate calls, one to officers at 1.03 a.m., that alleged that a man had been shot five times in a bathtub. After checking up on Green, police received another call to officers from the same computer-generated voice. And the suspect stated that they, quote, were upset about Mrs. Green's political view on transgender youth rights, according to the report. Marjorie Taylor Green gave an interview on Newsmax following the news. Let's watch. Here's the, the very terrifying truth of it. This is how they get people killed. So this person that made this phone call intentionally wanted me to be killed by police officers um, because they are, are basically, it's like political terrorism. They hate my views and they hate the legislation that I introduced last week, the Protect Children's Innocence Act. And this bill would make it a felony, a class C felony by federal law um, to perform gender affirming care on children under the age of 18. So that is not hyperbole. This is very dangerous doing this, and people have absolutely gotten killed for this. Um, usually this happens, or the most common type of occurrence is when people are playing online video games. Mm -hmm. uh, it gets very heated, young men. And there have been several instances. I remember writing about one. I can't remember where it was. But a case where um, uh, someone called, called, said, yeah, said, hey, called the police, said there's guns or explosives or something. There's a hostage situation at a certain address. Uh, and, and it was actually not even the address of the other person. Mm. So the cops showed up to a, a random person or it might have been where this person used to live, but it was a different family. And they, they killed someone. So it's not really, honestly, it, it, and we criticize the police a lot, it's not, here the blame is not really on the police necessarily in this? No. Well, if they're being told, if they're being given the information that this is a hostage scenario, this person has a bomb, this person has a gun, um, they're the weapon. The person who made that false report is essentially guilty of attempted murder. And the, the this is not just filing a false police report. This I, is, I mean, it's difficult. So it obviously is 
you know, also filing a, a false police right. report. But there is this way, weird way that it also seems to me to be an indictment of the police and the police practices if they are in a position to intervene ostensibly in order to protect and serve because they've been called to intervene in a domestic disturbance of some kind and are so reckless and dangerous that there is a high statistical likelihood that they will kill an innocent person. So even if this were a true scenario, the police would have to enter the house and try to figure out who the victim and who the perpetrator was. And the idea that they are conducting themselves in such a way and engaging in these high-risk activities in such a way that could result in them bursting into Marjorie Taylor Greenminder, her own business in her kitchen, and end up killing someone, it's a little bit well, of a but if, told, but if they're specifically told this is a hostage situation or this guy is shooting people, I mean, like, we have called on the Uvalde police to storm that classroom, guns blazing, and shoot that guy. I the critique if, you're, there. if they're told that is the situation, the person who gave them that false information on purpose yeah, but the critique has for, committed the for crime. A Uvalde serious crime wasn't that they murder. didn't immediately bust down the door and start spraying a classroom with bullets. I think that we would also have concerns if they did that and killed a bunch of kids in the process. The concern is that they moseyed around out in the hallway without even trying to get a door open for over an hour while kids were being shot inside and they heard live gunfire. So I'm just, this is, this is like a, a nuanced point, but it does seem to me that the risk that a regular person cooking dinner or whatever in their house would be stormed by police because the police call them does speak to the lack of perception, the lack of strategic assessment that goes in before a person would enter enter a house. Even if it were a hostage situation, the police would have to make some assessment to make sure that they're shooting the right person in a hostage situation. And the fact that they don't is exactly how we get situations like the Breonna Taylor case. Well, right. I mean, the, the, the police didn't need to, the police did not need to initiate the Breonna Taylor situation the way that they did. They, they not, yes, I've been or critical of these the police tactics. Right. They, they knocked down her door in the middle of the night. And so when you, the police sometimes do that in a way, that, so if you do that, obviously the person is going to think, they might think they're being robbed. Mm -hmm. They might think, they might reach for their gun thinking they're under assault, not from the police, but mm -hmm. for, so those are really foolish tactics. But if you, if you, if the police are told that they're, if they're explicitly told that they're going to have to enter a very dangerous situation with an armed maniac who is killing people, mm -hmm. Okay, I, it, it can still, there can still be a failing if they, t you know, take action that is wrong and they kill an innocent person, obviously. But I'm saying in this case, but the main, it, it should be considered, like, just, like, you are a participant yeah, in, in the crime. Yeah, I'm not trying and, to exculpate well, but the sta So the statutes, because I've, I've written about this, the statutes in many states are not strong enough. I mean, I rarely recommend new laws ever, <laughs> libertarian. They should be, the statutes should be enhanced for this kind of... What kind of statutes kind of, for what kind of... For, for people squatting, squatting. For people who make... Yeah, people make a false police report of this kind. Mm -hmm. It's not just a false police report, it's attempted murder. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and she's right. That's, that's what a person who makes this kind of call, it, it, that's, so this, yeah. and this is, it's not like this has just happened to right-wing people. This happened to David Hogg. This, happened to, this happens to famous people all the time. Mm -hmm. um, it, is, it, is, it, it needs to be punished, harshly punished and harshly disincentivized by cracking down on the people who mm -hmm. do it. I mean, there's just no other way around it. So mm -hmm. I hope they catch whoever... Um, whoever made the call, if that's and, possible, yeah, and, there, and there throw the dispute, book at him. There is some dispute about uh, who, in fact, did make the call. As we read, uh, the person who made the call expressed discontent over Marjorie Taylor Greene's uh, legislation uh, that is perceived by some to be targeting trans people and their ability to get medical treatment. Um, but there is some 
discussion, and I'm sure that re people will figure it out eventually as to whether or not that is a false, false flag, flag of sorts. Time, time will tell. Yeah, I had that thought. It's uh, it's totally possible. I mean, it happens in the reverse situation a sure. lot. A lot of hate crimes or hate incidents uh, on college campuses in particular. We just had this uh, Michigan uh, Governor Whitmer case kind of resolving recently. That, yeah. And, and also, I've, I've seen a lot of cases at what, my own, uh, my own uh, 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 University of Michigan, where I went, uh, yeah, there were, I can recall several cases when I was there and after, uh, someone said they were, they were targeted because they were Muslim or something, yeah. and it's usually oh, there was that, they did There was that it. great usually classic case of the, someone, of the person who said that, um, uh, a, like a black person had held them down and carved like a B for black in their cheek, but the B was written backward as though you drew it in a mirror. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, not to make fun, but yes, yeah, of course, there's a lot happen. of, or there's a lot on campuses. There are a lot of like accidental hate, like um, so many of them. Someone of hung a noose in front yeah. of it. It was it was not intended yeah, to be. You throw, a noose out, you and, miss, you throw out a banana, miss a trash. Yeah, can exactly. Becomes, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, well, some figures on the right have called out Green's opponent for tweeting that MTG must be stopped after he linked to an MSNBC article that says Green has officially declared war on the trans community, and according to police, fake. 911 caller swatted Green again this morning. Officers responded once again to her home around 3 a.m. I don't think if all he had said was we have to stop Marjorie Taylor Green, that that's could be just purely that's political, purely benign. Yeah. And and conservatives got to be careful here if they're going to say that's oh, wrong yeah. because liberals <laughs> have criticized conservatives for for you know the the very. Um, you know, extreme defeat the Dems rhetoric uh, from like from Sarah Palin in the past. Remember, she was accused of it, it being her fault. She was explicitly accused it, that it was her fault. The Tucson shooting mm -hmm. because uh, because she had had some kind targets. of map with targets yeah. over. But of course, the shooter had never seen that, and there's no mm -hmm. evidence he was motivated by Sarah Palin whatsoever. She ended up suing the New York Times over getting getting this wrong like mm -hmm. years after the fact. Mm -hmm. um, so we always want to be, and it's so tempting for both sides mm -hmm. to be like. Like oh well, this is now I get to blame Democrats or now I get to blame mm -hmm. Republicans. The baseball shooting, mm -hmm. the, it's so easy. And, and the very same people who will say, well, I'm not, my rhetoric is not responsible for other people's actions. I, I didn't call for explicit violence. Mm -hmm. They'll say that, and then when there's any opportunity for them to accuse the other side of doing that, they will take it every single time. Yeah, and you've been really consistent on that, Robbie, and oh, I appreciate that. I think you're right. Thank you entirely. Yeah. All right, more rising in just a minute. You have people like Fauci saying that his lockdowns didn't cause any permanent damage to any young kids. I got news for you, it did, and we are going to reap those rewards across the whole country for years and years and years because they treated kids so poorly. And I'm just sick of seeing him. I know he says he's going to retire. Someone needs to grab that little elf and chuck him across the Potomac. All right, that was some spicy rhetoric from <laughs> Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, a potential, likely perhaps even presidential candidate in uh, the next cycle. Um, I So I agree with him that, and we criticized, or I criticized at least earlier this show this week, Fauci's comments saying that he didn't think it harmed, that permanently harmed anyone. And that, I mean, that's just not true. People committed suicide. I mean, people 
people really did suffer because not just not because of the disease. Some people suffered obviously because of the disease, but some people suffered more so because of the restrictions. So I take his point on that. I would not have used the words throw him or kick him across the Potomac. I, I think. What about he, the words a little elf, Robbie? Would you have used the word? I mean, I wouldn't. Uh, elves. Well, okay. Elves are not little. First of all, okay. elves are tall. Here comes the dungeon master. Um, hundreds. They live for hundreds of years. Um, Tolkien has set the standard for what elves are and look like. Elves are more like vampires, essentially. Okay. So outside of D and D, if you want little, we're talking dwarves. We're talking gnomes. We're talking various other creatures. Okay. The point being that I think that he rightly anticipates that he's going to get, and the Republican Party can get a lot of traction out of some legitimate frustrations that a lot of parents have had over the way the shutdowns were handled. Moreover, I think that many people were pointing out in that clip that he seems to be very purposefully adopting a very Trumpian style of mannerism. I don't quite see it. You I don't? know people are, I, I this, see that people are saying that. Have you seen a person I mean, I do crazy things with my hands like when this I talk. other than Donald Trump? Or no, hands, you're not a hands talker. At an angle, I'm a very much a hands talker. Not as much as me. <laughs> no, I, I, I definitely do see it, but I find it to be <laughs> less effective. That's a weird mm. kind of a thing to say. Look, I think that Donald Trump was a TV star. What does Donald Trump do with his hands to this, right? This, it, it, it is the turning of the hands. It's like this motion, which I think is very specific to him, yeah. I gotta say, and that I'm seeing from Ron DeSantis here. Many, many people have tried to mimic Barack Obama over the years. We've seen Beto O'Rourke do it. We've seen, you know, Julian Castro try his hand at it. We've seen a lot of Pete Buttigieg most famously Let me be clear. is the example. There are those who say. <laughs> and I think it doesn't work. Yeah. I, none of these people, I mean, maybe no, you got to be your own person. Buttigieg. you got to be your own person. It, it doesn't work. And it actually, I think, can remind people of the budget version of the original that they're actually getting, that the fact that they're not getting the real thing. And so as we see more and more of Ron DeSantis, I'll be really curious to see how public opinion shifts and how much he's able to still capture the idea that he's an inheritor of the crown of Trump, especially if Trump is inserted back into politics because he runs for office. In you know, the most interesting thing to me about the DeSantis approach that is actually, I wouldn't even characterize this as necessarily a Trump approach. It's really being pioneered as we speak by DeSantis and his team is how they want to handle the press. Mm -hmm. um, they are very consciously, uh, Christina Peshaw is this you know major press person for him. I, I think she was part of uh, the, the governor's offices now on the campaign team. Um, her view and, and the kind of view of the team is that um, sh sh they, I mean, they speak to local media, um, but they're not going to, generally speaking, not going to do interviews with with what they would term as hostile mainstream or progressive people and let them frame and tell their story. They don't do that. They sometimes when they get interview requests like that, they actually just post them on Twitter and say we're not responding to this. Mm. Um, you know, when they like they they their view is they're not going to play the media's game. The media doesn't get to be this. Oh yeah, we're you know we're the media, so you have to you have to sit down for these interviews with us where we're going to mock you and hate you and try to destroy you because we actually are on the team that's against you, but we're pretending that we're not on the other team. We're, and and I, the I, DeSantis team is not going along with I, that I, fiction I anymore. I think that's smart, especially because you get your media clip and then social media takes it yeah. to another dimension and gets it where it needs to go. So all you need is the interview. You don't need it to be necessarily on CNN to get the circulation. Right. Exactly. They're gatekeepers. They don't, need, they don't need the mainstream media's framing of it. They right. can just speak 
directly to the people through social media or whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, that's the gatekeeping effect that has been eroded by social media that allows candidates. I, to I wish a lot of left candidates would learn that lesson. You know, Bernie Sanders that's was a, a pioneer point. in some yeah. respects. He had his own radio show and he had this kind of fireside chat style podcast before he ran in, in even I think it was even predated 2016. Um, and during the campaign, he tried to dabble in a little bit of that. I was in charge of the campaign podcast, which came out once a week. We didn't actually use it to speak directly to the public in the way that I thought that he could have. There were also a lot of live stream events that got a lot of traction. If you're one of these people who's really big on Twitter and has a big social media following, the world is your oyster. You can really sidestep a lot of these hostile environments, but most politicians, Bernie included, still choose to go into the lion's mm. den and face Whoopi Goldberg and all, all of the thoughts and opinions. It's going to be interesting do. if increasingly they just don't. I, Republicans yeah. are going to take inspiration from this DeSantis approach and, and do less and less of that. It's interesting. I think sometimes it can go too far, like when we talked about you know DeSantis turning down or not wanting to be on The View. I, I think, like if I was an advisor for him, I'd, I'd say that's probably, even if they're going to over-the-top mock you, they, then they look bad well, and you look good. So you have to be a little bit tactical and, about it. And you have to know what the capacities of your principle are. Not right. everyone can handle that situation. You know, for all that I don't care for his politics, I think a Pete Buttigieg, not that they would ever be hostile to him, but to the extent <laughs> that they were, I think he could handle it. AOC, they were actually somewhat hostile to her on the last appearance I saw of her on there, and she handled it very Definitely. She's, I mean, she's, she's, she's good at talking to and working with people. She's good. Not everybody is like that. Um, and I do also think there's a lot of value. Cuddle Harris. <laughs> exactly. And sometimes if you do go into the lion's den and they are super hostile to you and you come off as above it all, that's a huge win for you. That's Absolutely. A huge win you. And we saw that with one of those early breakthrough interviews with Jordan Peterson where he went. Yes. Remember that interview? Absolutely. And that the, woman, so you're saying like women should be killed or whatever. She, yeah. she would just say these ridiculous things and he would respond so normal. For a long time, that made me convinced he was that more he was normal, normal than he actually is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, more rising right after this. Stay with us. Novak Djokovic will not be joining other players at the U.S. Open. Uh, he tweeted this. We can put it up on screen. Sadly, I will not be able to travel to New York this time for the U.S. Open. Uh, thank you, uh, Noel Pham, for your messages of love and support. Good luck to my fellow players, et cetera, et cetera. He's not able to come because he is not vaccinated and he's not a U.S. citizen. And we have this rule that is, I think, impossible to defend at this point, that you can't come to the country unless you're a citizen if you're not vaccinated. Mm. So, but this policy doesn't make, and, and, and so he chose not to get vaccinated because he's a you know, very, he's a professional athlete. He, his risk calculation is probably that he's at minimal risk of COVID. He might've already had it, who knows? And, but you know, the, the, uh, the while the vaccines have very, you know, sl small risks, uh, it, it could impact a, a high performance athlete. They could make the calculation that doesn't make sense for them. The U.S. government will not allow people to make that calculation for themselves. If they're in other countries and want to come here, even though other countries don't have this requirement yeah, anymore. Yeah, and even though obviously you can come and go from America, you can come as and go without having without, a vaccine. So this this is this is the issue. The cracks bad. and the inconsistencies and the policies are causing people to have, I think, a lot of legitimate concerns about how well thought through these policies are. If you can come and go as an American, if getting vaccinated isn't as tethered to your ability to, to spread COVID or affect your neighbors the way that people once thought it was. If, you know, it really is a personal health decision, 
at what point are we going to keep doing this and having these policies, right, especially no, when they're blowing up in such right. high-profile ways? Nope. There's no public health rationale you can make for this. It's it's if, if whether he's vaccinated or not does not at all impact how likely he is really to spread it to someone else. We're now we're all kind of we've conceded that finally. Um, it's just for his own benefit, and he has made a different decision. It's really none of the government's business or anyone else's business. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it just doesn't, like, again, this is not a policy that other countries have. It's, in general, don't we want to be friendly to immigrants in other countries and have an open society? That's something, why are you looking at me like that? I don't know. I, I I do think it's a little bit of a stretch to pretend that this is all about benevolent feelings about immigration and wanting people to be able to come in the country. I, look, I do think that there have been other times Fair historically enough. in the United States of America, there have been very strong prohibitions against people coming in with all kinds of not just kind of communicable diseases, but what were described as kind of defects, different kinds of you know disabilities. And there was this desire to have able-bodied people check in, people checked out at Ellis Island for all kinds of things that we would consider to be ableist to exclude them from now, not wanting feeble-minded people and all kinds of things like that. So I just... Mm. Not just this isn't what's going on here, but just like a little bit of historical perspective here. My this ancestors, idea that everyone should be able to come no matter the how much they're hacking up and brought along. lots of uh, productive, hardworking, violent people. To the <laughs> oh I could say that because it's my ancestors. <laughs> but uh, you can only knock your own, you know, your own category of ethnicity. I see we're doing a little identity politics yeah. here, Robbie. Uh, it's just for fun. It's been a it's been a long it's been a long day. <laughs> Getting into the the fun <laughs> stuff. So anyway, it's uh, and we, we've talked about um, Novak uh, Djokovic on on the show a lot. He's really been hampered in various uh, places from having to deal with you know the COVID regime. And you just can't you just can't make an argument anymore for keeping this in place. Now, if he got like some kind of exemption or some kind of waiver, you could then also argue, well, that's unfair. That's Why fair. does he get it? No one else. So clearly, it's just the policy should be ended. I think for everyone. Well, Maybe if more high-profile people like this do take these kinds of stands and there is public backlash against it, I haven't really been following this, but I presume there has been some commentary from other people in the field, other athletes, sports commentators and the like about whether or not this is appropriate, that it will help provoke the government to consider making some of these kinds of changes. I mean, the CDC has come under a lot of scrutiny for its unwillingness to say mea culpa and make some pivots at this moment. And maybe this new changing of the guard with Fauci on his way out is an opportunity for them to have a reset with the general public. I think addressing a policy like this and its effects might be a good way to go about it. I'm not even sure what, is this policy, is this a DHS policy? Is this uh, this is just the this is the FDA or the CDC's? That's a that's a good question. I have no idea who who is managing the. I guess this is the air. This is forced on the airlines essentially, right? This is how this is how is this being. How is it being enforced? I guess he could just come in and know. How could you? No, you you have to. You do have to present a a, a vaccination uh, form. Yeah, I I think you do. And is it equivalent to what we have? Right, I didn't go. I was supposed to go, and then I ended up not going um, because I wasn't feeling well. I did it remotely because I was supposed to go to Canada to speak, and uh, I ended up not going. And then, yeah, it looked like I think I was going to have to take a test at that point to get back in. This was months ago now. Oh, to get back in. It wasn't that Canada was prohibiting you from coming in. I can't recall which way it was. Okay, so, you know, this is from from the CDC. Non-citizen, non-immigrants must be fully vaccinated to travel by air to the U.S. So it does look like a... Yeah, so that's what has to... But but they'll always say that's just the guidance. And DHS extends COVID-19 vaccination requirements. It's DHS, yeah, it's DHS, yeah. 
Great, another wonderful idea from our national security state. Well, that should be changed today, tomorrow, as soon as possible. And uh, we will have more rising right after this. FBI agents were prohibited from investigating the infamous Hunter Biden laptop, according to a report from various conservative media sources, which say a whistleblower told GOP lawmaker Senator Ron Johnson about it. So this whistleblower is alleging the FBI's top brass did not allow any probes into the laptop to prevent uh, influence on the 2020 presidential election. So Ron Johnson's uh, letter about this is pretty, this is a pretty, um, big claim, if this is mm. accurate. Big uh, if true. <laughs> uh, well, it's big if true because, as I said when we talked about the Twitter whistleblower and I've said about previous whistleblowers, like, okay, this is, we don't know who this person is. This could be someone with an ax to grind. Sure. Um, so you have to take it, you have to just listen to it and, and hope that more information comes out. What the whistleblower is saying is that, yeah, the FBI slow rolled this. They didn't want to do anything with it. Maybe they... Maybe it was because they were trying to shield Biden before the election. Maybe they just <clears throat> didn't, like, sincerely didn't believe it. Or, or, like numerous law enforcement agents, remember that you know numerous people signed a letter saying this has all the hallmarks of Russian disinformation. Right. Uh, that social media suppressed it based on recommendations from mainstream and uh, liberal and democratic uh, pundits and other news sources saying, oh yeah, this is probably Russian disinformation. It's not Russian disinformation, and it's now been verified over right. and over again that it is true that he left this laptop at a repair store. It made its way to the New York Post. Um, it's That's never been called into doubt at this point. Uh, seriously, that is what happened. So it would not be, it is not unbelievable. It would not be crazy right. at all that the FBI did, in fact, slow roll this because represent people, former law enforcement officials, former intelligence officials signed a letter saying, oh yeah, this is probably Russian disinformation. So it would not be surprising if that is actually what the people inside the bureau thought. Yeah. And, you know, I think this doesn't make it right, but I think there probably also were some concerns given the blowback that the FBI got over the timing of the investigation into Hillary Clinton's emails in the election, I think there was some implication in, in the article that, you know, they didn't want to get any more smoke. They didn't want to get any more heat for interfering with the outcome of an election and to the extent that the Hunter Biden laptop right. might have thrown things one way or the other. They just didn't want to be in that position again, which, of course, I don't think is an excuse for withholding information, pretending that it's misinformation, censoring information from being able to, uh, to circulate freely on social media. But it is an interesting context to think about right now. In addition to the fact that there are some people who are going to perhaps look at this skeptically, because we're in a place where skepticism of the FBI does mm -hmm. help those who are looking to exonerate or take the heat off of Donald Trump as he's being investigated right now. I've spoken here on the show and elsewhere about how I think this is an opportunity for criminal justice reform advocates to go ahead and make the claims and critiques that they want to make about the FBI because those are legitimate critiques and to deal with prosecuting Trump separately if it is the case that he has actually done something wrong. But you know, I, I do think that that's going to be on the background of some people's minds as they consume this story. I mean, it's not because the agency is not, they can't say, well, we're just trying to be neutral, so we didn't want to do this during an election, because they were not, I mean, that would be one thing if they were just totally neutral, but of course they weren't, because people use the good name of the FBI 
to it, it's you know it's maybe undeserved <laughs> good moral standing where I, I probably you and I as the leftist and libertarian always had more skepticism I of law you enforcement. Referred to yourself as a leftist. No, you the left. I don't think I'm passing for leftist today. Well, we did a lot of uh, good police. Uh, good policing segments today. Yeah, not, not the student loan segment. <laughs> but uh, but uh, anyway, the 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 agency did not behave in a neutral manner because, or at least people who were not neutral toward the Hunter Biden story, who were trying to say it was Russian disinformation, were saying, you know, we know because we're, we, were, we worked for the FBI. So the FBI was thrust into it in a non-neutral way. So mm -hmm. they can't just, they couldn't defend themselves, from my point of view, by saying, well, we just didn't want to, you know, do anything one way or the other. Well, you did do something. You did it in the, in the, not in the favorable to, to Biden way. Yeah, I mean, I think that, in addition to all of the, you know, subtext about the FBI right now, there are some, you know, disproportionately liberals who are going to look at this and say, even if this is all real, what is the news value of it? Why do I care that the president's son is engaged in all of the things that he's engaged with? And I do think that those people who are trying to make the case that the FBI needs to be critiqued for showing bias or that the social media companies need to be critiqued should do more to make a substantive case for why there's news value here outside of just the censorship story. And so to the extent that there are real claims that there was some wrongdoing by Hunter Biden that was facilitated by Joe Biden and some of the dealings in Ukraine and those kinds of things, I would like to see, to the extent that it's true, emphasis on those aspects mm -hmm. of it, as opposed to kind of the prurient interest in, you know, Hunter Biden's, you know, personal activities, drug use, those kinds of things. 100% agreement. I don't even, right, I'm for drug legalization. I, I don't care if people, use, I don't think people should go to prison for using drugs. I don't care if other people use drugs. I, I, I think I, Hunter Biden looks like someone who is struggling with addiction and some other things, and I, just, I have sympathy for those people. Those people need help. Now, the influence peddling is a is a actually yeah. serious potentially serious potentially criminal matter we don't know how much joe biden was involved in it but but yes and it, it is frustrating that the media is often very focused on prudent exactly what you said the you know the pictures of him half naked with prostitutes and whoever else and using drugs and because it's it's salacious it yeah. draws our attention but again i don't care it's it's that should all be legal, in my view. Yeah, well, we'll see what comes of this and this whistleblower claim in this letter. Um, and tomorrow on Rising, we will hand the baton over to Ryan Grimm and Emily Jashinsky. Is it Thursday already? We've. It's hard to believe. Time flies and you're having fun, Robbie. <laughs> Is that what we've been having? <laughs> all right, well, uh, Emily and Ryan will talk to Trita Parsi uh, about the latest Iran deal issues. Uh, so tune in for that. Yeah, and be sure to like and subscribe so you don't miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are available anywhere you listen to podcasts. And you can also catch us on the Plex TV app. So check that out. Learn how to use your uh, smart TV devices. So you <laughs> Tell us how to do it <laughs> later. <laughs> Write to us, tweet at us. And we'll see you next week. Bye, guys.